0: Hello everyone. Welcome to mystifyingly missing true crime and thought provoking events. My name is Rhonda Jefferson and I'll be your host as we explore cases and topics that include all of that subject matter. I know the title is long of the podcast, but I believe there's a lot of interesting things out in this world, whether it be cases of missing people or things, true crime, and just other events that may make you take a step back and reevaluate how you feel about things. If you're new here, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back. If you are new here, though, you may definitely want to go back and listen to part one of the Germond family murders, even though I will be giving a summary of the case again as I start this episode. I do know I said that I would try to get this episode out as soon as possible after the first one, which was about a month ago, but two things happened. One is I read the book that was kind of a follow-up um, or a result of the case study by Vincent Cookingham, who was in forensics. He's retired now, but um, he's you know a forensics expert but the second thing is well it involved my stove oil and flames so i was very fortunate though um literally i was away from the stove for less than a minute and i'm not entirely sure what happened i'm thinking maybe i accidentally spilled some of the cooking oil directly onto the burner and that caused it again not entirely sure but yes we had a little bit of a fire and cleanup was the big thing because soot was literally in any place that you could think it would be. Even just like the ledges of the tile in the kitchen, um, you know, it where it's just not quite, you know, maybe like an eighth of an inch or 16th of an inch away from the wall. There was just like soot all over that. And we had to replace the oven hood and a cabinet and Need to repaint some areas of the house. My husband's saying just the kitchen, but I think the dining room needs to be repainted too just to make everything look even. Plus smoke was out there and may have to replace some fan blades. So it it was something I hoped would never happen, but we all are okay. Um, it was just myself and my cat home at the time and the poor little kitty cat Oh, He was so scared. He's still upset and I don't know if he's trying to guard me or he's staying with me to protect him but he's kind of been really close to me and at my side. Um, Since then he's usually attached to one of my sons or my husband um, but he's been staying with his mommy. I'm just disappointed that I didn't get to do some of the other things I like to do um at christmas like bake cookies and things like that because you know i went a few days without a stove and again cleanup was the big part but just incredibly grateful that it wasn't worse and that my husband is well versed in you know doing a lot of things he he's um actually remodeled our whole kitchen before by himself so he's taking care of everything for me. So I'm really blessed in that. Um, so I'm actually recording this on December 25th and I hope to have it out, um, by early December 26th. I will say I'm disappointed in myself that I didn't get it out and finished earlier, but I did try to work on it, work on the recording the day after the fire, um, you know, it again, it wasn't huge and it was put out with minimal damage, but I just found myself not able to concentrate 100%. And to me, the episode sounded really rushed, you know, after I recorded it and listened back, it, it didn't sound the best. So I wanted to come back and record this while I was a little more focused. Like I said, this is the second part of the Germond family murders. I will go back and I'm going to give a summary of the things that we covered last time and then kind of pick up there. I will say about the book there was a lot of repetition. Really it was the information from the forensics case study that I found online and I would say probably the first third or so of the book was exactly the same thing. There was just, you know, additional information as he got more specific within the individual topics, as well as there were crime scene photos. Um, I got it from Kindle Unlimited. That's where I read it. I will you know, just let you know if you do decide to go in and read the book. At the very end, there are pictures of the crime scene. I was kind of lulled into this sense that, okay, there weren't going to be any close-up crime scene photos. Um, like the first series of photos were all you know, from the outside of the house and things like that. So I guess I didn't realize he would actually be going in to the the actual crime scene, you know getting pictures from there. So be warned there are crime scene photos of the actual victims, which was a little jarring and I, I mean I knew there would be pictures it said there would be pictures so I thought I'd prepared myself um, adequately but again, I kind of got into that lulled sense of, okay, these pictures aren't bad because it just showed the outside of the home and things like that. But especially the picture of Bernice, the daughter, to me, it showed a sense of desperation and fear that she felt. And that was just heartbreaking. Um, Thankfully, there was not a picture of Raymond, the younger child's face. You know, just having such a young child killed like that, probably that would have made it you know, that much worse. It was bad enough to look at all those pictures. But then to put it in perspective, the the police of that time had to be there and see that their family members and people who found them saw them. And they had to live it. The German family had to live this horror. So sometimes it's necessary, I guess, to to see that type of content to really get through to someone that that just the depth of the pain and fear that a person may have felt. So as you can probably surmise too, um, to give my disclaimer that this podcast may include topics such as violence, death, injury, or any other type of tragedy. So be warned as we discuss these matters. Now what I'll do is I'm going to go back and just try to summarize as much as I can to get the gist of um, the first part, just to kind of refresh everybody since it has been a while, and then I'll get into you know where we stopped from last time. All my sources will be linked in the description of the episode. Again, though, most of the information comes from the case study and the book, with some other articles and information. I'm just kind of filling out some of the story. The case took place on Thanksgiving Eve in Stanfordville, New York in 1930. It involved the Germond family, which consisted of Houston and Mabel, the parents, and Bernice, who was around 18, and Raymond, who was around 10. I say around because there are some discrepancies in their exact ages so, you know, Bernice was a young adult and was actually going to a college where Raymond was still a young child. The parents were in their mid-40s. Houston worked as a farmer and he provided milk um, to the Borden Milk Company, which I'm thinking most of us are at least somewhat familiar with. And Houston seemed to be respected by the community but he was not really rich. Um, He had a total of 12 cows. And on the day that the murders took place, he had gone into another town about 10 miles away and cashed a check. Um, One of the differences I saw is the check is listed as $150 um, is what I mentioned last week, but the check may have actually been more and he just took $150 out and he did go and pay some bills. This also did lead lead to another discrepancy, as it was thought that he had about $70 in cash on him, but that may have been anywhere from $50 to $100. On his way back from the bank and paying the bills, he stopped at his brother Paul's house a couple miles from his home. He left there at around 4.30. Mabel had been at home for most of the day Probably preparing for the Thanksgiving dinner that was upcoming and with the Thanksgiving dinner it is interesting to look at the amount that it costs to feed someone in 1930. Um, there was a comparison that shows it's actually more expensive today it seems like but in 1930 the beginning of the Great Depression um had come upon the United States so that may or may not have been playing a role into what they might have been able to afford um or do for Thanksgiving dinner. One of the main things that we need to remember about this crime is the time of 5:20 p.m. Bernice, like I mentioned previously, was in college or a school to help her in business. And she took the bus home every day and the bus driver knew the exact time that he dropped her off. That was 520. And she did make a comment that it looked like nobody was home because the house was dark. And this would be very important. Um, I did check the sunset time for the date of the murders and it was 428 p.m. So it would have been quite dark at that time. Over the next two days, Houston did not make a delivery of his milk to Borden's, so the first day they actually thought he might have taken a vacation day, which was extremely rare for him, and the workers at Borden kind of joked about that, but on day two they became quite concerned, and a Borden's worker named William Coons went out to check and found Houston and Raymond in the wagon shed. At the property, Coons probably quite surprised at what he saw, and horrified, got in his car and drove to Houston's brother's house, and told him that Raymond and Houston had been killed. And Paul, who was the brother, along with his father-in-law George Rogers, um, they went with him. They went with Coons, and they were concerned about Mabel and Bernice as well because that was one of the questions they had of William Coons, but he had not checked inside. Now, there is conflicting information about the role that an Arthur Curry may have played when finding the bodies. I have read some articles that say he was there when Mabel and Bernice were found. I've seen other articles where it said that... um, They went to Curry's house to use a phone. That was actually closer than Paul's, but they needed to call the police and they went to Curry's home. Either way, he was on scene pretty quickly after the bodies were found, but this was almost two days after they were last seen. Crime scene forensics wasn't even in its true infancy at that time, at least not the way we see it now. Yes, there were jobs that people had to do within the crime scene, but it, this crime scene was not even protected. So the very basics weren't even followed. And when I say um, some of the forensics wasn't even in its infancy, there would be no way that they would even be thinking about something such as DNA at the time. Another important time is 6.40 p.m., and that's when Bernice's watch had stopped as it was damaged in the struggle that she must have had with her attacker. It appeared as though all four were stabbed and the police in the area that would normally have handled this case knew that they were not prepared um, to handle a quadruple murder. So they did ask for the state police to help them with the investigation and that fell under um, the Fishkill branch or station of the state police, but even that was 40 miles away from the crime scene. Houston and Raymond were found in the wagon shed, but there was evidence to say that they were killed, at least Houston, in the area between the home and the wagon shed as his hat, pipe, and a screwdriver was found in the actual yard. Mabel was found next to the kitchen stove with bernice bernice was found in an unusual position there was a small long table that sat up i guess the best way to describe it is against the counters or cabinets and it's narrow so it wouldn't be like a regular dinner table at least from the pictures it was kind of the the length and maybe a little wider than say a breakfast bar or counter that you might have at your home and she was found in between the legs that was a very very small area for an adult woman to be in and that's what i meant by it showed fear and desperation and that she was trying anything that she could do to get away from her attacker as most people would do in that situation Bernice did show defensive wounds and as far as any motive, Houston's wallet was missing but it was found later and the murder weapon was not found at the scene but it was found afterwards about a mile from the home. It was about an 11 inch knife and And it was actually found by a taxi driver, not anybody in law enforcement. And that may actually be as big a piece of evidence as the actual knife itself. The knife had been wiped clear of any fingerprints. Police found a retailer or seller of the knives. And he said that he sold 11 and they could track down 10 out of the 11. So they assumed the 11th was the murder weapon. Which is flawed logic because that means they're figuring that nobody else in the state of New York or Pennsylvania or New Jersey, any of the adjoining states or even worldwide, bought a knife like that. So, again, kind of flawed logic there. The knife was erroneously reported as being a pig scraper in news articles when, in fact, it was just an 11-inch knife early suspects were migrant laborers who worked in the area. These were immigrants and suspicion went to them because somebody supposedly reported that Bernice was being hassled by at least one of the men. There was also, someone thought, a case of mistaken identity because Paul, Paul, the brother, had caught some people poaching and Some people thought that the poacher was looking for revenge and got the wrong house. And then finally, Arthur Curry as well um, said that he had cut Bernice's hair because he was a chicken farmer, a hairdresser, a roadhouse owner, and alleged bootlegger. But he had done Bernice's hair and she had mentioned having a boyfriend. Curry himself had some feuds with the Germond family and that he wanted a tract of land that, you know, um, Houston was not willing to let Curry use. Focus did actually, um, go on to Bernice's love life, thinking that there was possibly a jealous boyfriend, possibly someone who wanted to be a boyfriend or an ex-boyfriend. So basically they were focusing in on her love life, but... For one thing, the dean or the head of the school that she went to said that she didn't have a boyfriend. But my thought is, why would he even know or anybody in a leadership position at the college know that one individual had a boyfriend? That seems kind of a stretch to me. But again, looking at the time frame, this is 1930 we're looking at. Maybe things were, well, we know things were a lot different back then. There was a man who supposedly, and I use that word liberally as there's really not any evidence for this, a man on the bus the day of the murders that had taken a liking to Bernice and he was quote unquote rough looking. So he became a suspect even though there was no evidence that he even existed. There was another man who went into a local store saying that his mother was very sick and he had to get to the train station. I'm sorry, not a train, a bus. And he was told that there were no buses coming. So the store owner was able to find two people willing to drive him for $5, which was a lot more back then than it is now. He was dressed pretty well and seemed to have money on him as at the store he bought some sodas and he also bought a watch as well as being able to pay for the drive to his mother. And it was said that he had a $10 bill, which again, you know, it was a lot more money than than it was now. The store owner said he thought the man's name was Florentine Chase, but this kind of opened the Pandora's box For another man named Florentine, as he was misidentified as his Florentine Chase, he was put into jail for 55 days as a material witness, but later released, but he did get $110 from that. So, this is where we stopped in the first episode, and now we're going to just go a little bit further, maybe about a year to two years after the murders, when some of the law enforcement personnel began to change. Sheriff Close was the sheriff at the time of the murders, but he became an assemblyman. Then the under sheriff was Oakley Cookingham, and he became the sheriff. And Oakley Cookingham is a distant relative of Vincent Cookingham, but it's not someone that Vincent knew or would have ever met. So in reading the book, like I said, there was a lot of repetition. Um, He... This is more of an personal opinion. He seemed to be, to me, a little condescending in the book because he even says at one point, and I'm paraphrasing here, that he recognizes that he's repeating information, but it's, you know, he, he wants to make sure that the average person can understand it. But the problem was he never really got to the point where he fully explained something there were many parts of the book where he would say, evidence will show, evidence will show, um, you know, just in front of a lot of things, but it didn't because there wasn't a full explanation of what or why the evidence would have shown certain things. So it was kind of left, in my opinion, again, incomplete in an attempt to make sure everybody understood it. So it was like the same information was being repeated instead of you know, mentioning something, explaining that it needs more detail, and then later on repeating the same information, but then going into the detail. So again, that's just kind of my observations to the book as about the last two thirds really just repeated what the first third said. The case was stagnant for about two to three years after the murders community members took up a petition to try to have the case reopened because of course they were scared about who may have done this horrendous murder. Mm -hmm. The law enforcement in the area really didn't pay attention to the petition because they didn't have the evidence, you know, really what else could they do? Or there may have been some reasons behind that, we'll see. But at the same time in 1932, the governor of New York, one man named Franklin Delano Roosevelt, was running for president. And so he kind of honed in on this petition and, you know, reopened the case. Even though there was no new evidence or no new tips, it's, in my opinion, one of those things where somebody uses an event for political clout. Now, it was at this time that Sheriff Cookingham decided to charge somebody for the murders. This man was Arthur Curry. You know, the same Arthur Curry that was a neighbor of the Germans. The same Arthur Curry who cut Bernice's hair, who was at the crime scene, even if he was not the one to discover the bodies. And the man who had a feud with Houston regarding a plot of land. And it's this land itself where they think the motive did lie. Now, the sheriff at the time of the murders, Sheriff Close, was actually friends with Arthur Curry. Curry had served as a deputy under Close. This makes me wonder if there was some type of an affiliation regarding the bootlegging that Curry was rumored to have done, even if he was not. Say Sheriff Close was not part of the operation of bootlegging. Maybe he turned a blind eye. And when this these murders took place, Close being in a position where if word came out about the bootlegging and that he knew about it, it could implicate him in much more even if he was not actually there. So one has to worry if, or wonder if it was this relationship between Curry and Close that really precluded Curry from getting charged with the murders any sooner. But we can also look at it that there was actually no physical evidence against Arthur Curry. So when it went before the judge, the judge did dismiss the charges because to sum up something that he said, it was that if the proceedings went any further with Arthur Curry... Then nobody would ever be safe. Meaning, if charges could be brought against and someone sent to trial with no evidence like this, then every single person would have to worry about being accused of a crime when there was no evidence against them. What actually plays a very big role in the timeline of events is the fact that Arthur Curry actually collected rent money from the family. That was in the amount of $30. So that puts him at the crime scene, if not at the time of the murders, then just before the murders. Curry stated that he left to get the $30 in rent at a little past four o'clock. The Curry house was very close to the Germond house, so close, in fact, that even though Paul lived two miles away, they went to Arthur Curry's house to call the police was closer to the Germond house so it was a very short walk even if I were to stretch the time that it would take for him to walk to 15 to 20 minutes he would have been at the home prior to four thirty. Four thirty 4 30 is the time that Houston and Raymond left Paul's house even if they kind of moved at 25 to 30 miles per hour because you know, roads weren't as great back then. It may have taken them a little bit longer. You know, they would have gotten home probably by about 440, 445 at the latest. So Curry, again, would have been at the crime scene. Something that is not made clear anywhere is whether or not Mabel would have had that $30. And that plays a big part in this. If she had the $30 in rent, she could have easily given that to Curry, and Curry could have left. However, Houston had cashed a check and had been paying bills. He could have very well had that $30 on him, and if Curry showed up to the house prior to Houston getting home, then he would have had to wait for Houston to get back before the $30 could be paid. So. That means he could have been waiting at the home for 20 or 25 minutes. When Curry got back home, there were two very incriminating things against him. First was the description that his wife gave, and he said he got home at around 6.40. So again, we have to look at the whole time frame here. Um, 6.40 was the time that was on Bernice's watch. Plus, it should not have taken him that long to get home. But once he did, his wife said he was covered in blood. In response to this, Curry told her that he had killed and butchered a pig. One has to remember that this is the time before, you know, electric um, washing machines. It would not have been that easy to get the blood out of the clothes. So, So wouldn't he have covered up if he had been butchering a pig? One would think so. The other thing is he was supposed to have given a man a haircut that night and when Curry spoke with the police he gave the wrong time as to when he started working on the haircut he told them again at around 6:40 but the man whose hair was being cut said it was closer to 7 which if Curry was covered in blood when he got home at 6:40 then he would have wanted to change and clean up before he went to his next customer because while his wife might accept the answer that he was um, butchering a pig, someone else may not, you know, think that that was an excuse once they found out there was a quadruple murder so close to their hairdresser's home and their hairdresser was late for the appointment that they had and gave the police the wrong time. During the investigation, a $20,000 reward was offered for the conviction of the murderer. The New York Times also put up $25,000, which brought out both amateur and professional sleuths. One man was someone named Cleveland Manning, who had formerly been the police commissioner of Poughkeepsie. So at least he had some credentials and understanding of police work. Whereas many people just were trying to find um, the culprit because of the immense amount of money that was being offered as an award. Cleveland Manning is important in this case if you are to believe a man named Andrew Neems. And the name is spelled, last name is spelled N-E-M-E-S. So I hope I'm pronouncing that right. But his name was Andrew Names Jr., And he came forward and said that another man named Steve Lico had murdered the Drummond family. However, Nimes recanted, but then later said Lico had done it again. So he was very flip floppy, if that's a term, on his statements to the police. And later, though, he accused Cleveland Manning of forcing him to give a confession. He apparently, and again, this is alleged. He apparently was told by Cleveland Manning that if he did not confess, that he would go to the electric chair. Nemes was feeling threatened, of course. Um, you know that to him would have been a very big threat because at this time we, you know, they didn't have TV shows that would inform us on the importance of having your Miranda rights read of understanding what your rights were. So Andrew Neems, looking at this man who had formerly been the police commissioner of Poughkeepsie, felt threatened by that, but kind of as a compromise in his mind, decided that, yes, he would confess to being there, but that the actual murderer was the man named Steve Lico. Another thing about Andrew Neems Jr. was that it was found that he had an IQ of 72, What this means is he could have been easily manipulated or coerced into giving that confession. Also, he seemed to have had a grudge against Lico because he had somehow insulted or slighted Neemes' mother. So uh, to him, it was his way of getting out, of going to the electric chair, according to Cleveland Manning, as well as kind of getting back at a man. That he had that grudge against there was another stranger that had been seen walking this was another stranger who looked disheveled however there were multiple reports of a stranger walking but in different directions that night along with the stranger who was dressed very nicely the man who had the alias if the store owner was to be believed as florentine chase The man in the store who did not have a drop of blood on him he was pretty much ruled out for that reason alone. However the men who drove him said that they were concerned in driving him with one of the men even saying that he held on to the crank of the car the whole time insinuating that he felt so uneasy that he would have used that as a weapon and if you're wondering what the crank was At that time, you had to actually crank a car to start it. So nothing like, you know, the push button that we have now in some of the newer cars. This was hand cranking a car to get it started. So this man had said he had carried that in his hand the whole time because he was worried about this stranger, yet he didn't say anything until after the murders. So one would think, is this... Either someone who's trying to get their 15 minutes of fame, or is this someone who, in retrospect, is looking at the situation with a whole new perspective and understanding that they were in a vehicle with a stranger to the area on the same night that four people were killed? Could his mind have actually manufactured this idea that he was that terrified So I don't want to come out and say he was lying. I think he may have looked back at the situation differently. And a lot of people may in their minds see it from a new perspective and can even convince himself that he was terrified of this stranger. Then there were the two disheveled strangers that were walking in different directions. They were kind of disregarded as suspects because for one thing if you've just murdered four people why would you walk in one direction then turn around and go the other direction however kind of in support of this the wallet was found in one direction from the home with the knife being found in the opposite direction so law enforcement disregarded it because There was really no foundation. They couldn't find, you know, any strangers who had been in the area. But even more so, I think that most people want to have a reason for something like this happening. So even though in some ways it would feel vindicated to say that a stranger had committed these murders, that it wasn't someone who was part of the community, that it wasn't one of them. However, I actually would find it more disconcerting because it just means that a stranger could show up anytime and kill someone. So I do think in some ways people wanted it to be a stranger so that they could point at their community and say, "See, nobody in our community did this. It was done by, you know, this stranger who was walking around the area all night." Most people, myself included, Look at the case in terms of a timeline. I think that can be said for many cases, if not all cases, is knowing where the victim or victims and the suspect or suspects are in relation to the crimes being committed. So we know that everything took place at the Dremond family home, even though there was one rumor that said the actual Murder location was 17 miles away. That seems very far fetched to me because of the blood evidence at the scene. Um, Mabel had blood coming out um, in like a stream from underneath of her from a wound. So the fact or to say that it was 17 miles away or anywhere other than the family home or property, meaning the wagon shed, that just Would not make a lot of sense to say it was 17 miles or anywhere else away from the home. Many people believe that the order of death was Mabel, Houston, Raymond, then Bernice. I, though, don't think it necessarily has to be in that order. Does it change the motive for the crime? No. Does it change the fact that four people were killed? No but it may help in looking at the the timeline and seeing if there could have ever been a case against Curry, who is someone that most people believe committed these murders or not. We've already touched upon some inconsistencies, such as the large gap in time between when Curry left to take a 15 to 20 minute walk at the most to collect his rent, or collect the rent for thirty dollars, even if needing to wait for Houston to get home, he should have been home by five o'clock, but he did not get back to his home until six forty, already being late for a hairdressing appointment, and he came home with a lot of blood on him. Other factors in the timeline are eyewitnesses, and we all know, and this is probably the best firm piece of evidence we have as far as the timeline is that the bus driver dropped off Bernice at 520 and the lights were off. There were people who passed the family home between 430 and 520 and up until about 510 the lights were on. By 520 the lights were off. The first person to make a statement about um, seeing lights or people at the property was a woman named Jeanette Coffin. She rode by the house somewhere between 4 30 and 5 and there was lights on or there were lights on on the property. Another man was Roger Schiffer and he would have gone past the family home sometime after Jeanette Coffin and there was a man who stated that he saw someone at the barn door and there were no lights on at the time when this man was at the barn door the description that he gave was that he was fixing the door the times though are not exact and giving a more precise time someone said they knew that it was around 5:10 that they saw someone at the door so this means between 5:10 and 5:20 somebody went back to the home and turned off the lights. Remember that the sun went down at 4:28 as well. So if you were Arthur Curry would you necessarily want to go walking in the dark? You would want to leave and try to get back at least while there was a little bit of light left. So if Curry did not know that Raymond and Houston we're going into town and were going to stop at Paul's house, which he would have no reason to know they were doing that, then he would have left, like he said, closer to four. And if he had been able just to grab the money and go, he probably would have been home just about sunset. That didn't happen though. If Curry got there before Houston and Raymond got home, would Mabel have opened the door for him? Most likely, yes. From her place in the kitchen, if someone had knocked on the kitchen door, she could have very easily looked out of a window that was next to the door and saw that the person there was not a stranger, that it was the person she was expecting to come collect $30 in rent. Even though there had been a family dispute going on between the Dremond family and the Currys about the use of the land, she still probably would not have felt threatened. They may not have had the most hospitable relationship, but, you know, she knows him. She doesn't think that anybody would hurt her, especially somebody that she knows. And even though times were different, I would think that she would have been hesitant about opening the door for someone that she didn't know if her husband wasn't home. So what I'm going to go over now is one of the timelines that many people believe in this case. So we know that Houston and Raymond left Paul's at around 4:30-ish. And another thing to remember is between 4:30 and 5, most likely until 5:10, the lights were on. These are the most important aspects in regards to the timeline so it's a little bit after four o'clock Mabel is home alone she hears a knock on the door and she looks out one of the side windows and sees Arthur Curry standing there she opens the door and takes a step out but somehow an argument starts to occur maybe Mabel wasn't expecting him to be there that day was this his normal schedule or was she? Tr- he trying to ask Mabel about the plot of land without her husband being home? So these are things that we will never know. But in this recognized timeline of events, Mabel and Curry get into a fight. And in a fit of rage, Curry gets a knife that Mabel has in the kitchen. So in this theory, it's a knife that comes from the Germans' kitchen itself. And if she opened the door um, to the kitchen, because that's where she was, the knife would have been more readily accessible. So Curry picks it up. He stabs Mabel, and there were stabs to the back of her legs, which indicate that she was either falling or even possibly crawling to try to get away. Looking in the pictures of this, I find... I find some of that conjecture kind of unlikely, so I'll go through that more in my theory of how I think it could have happened, but sticking with one of the recognized timelines, Curry ends up killing Mabel. Raymond and Houston then get home. Raymond goes inside while his father stays outside. When Raymond was found, he did not have a coat on, and this was November in New York it would have been cold. So Raymond goes in and sees his mother lying in the kitchen with blood all over the place, and he starts to run towards his father. His father comes out towards his yelling son, trying to find out what's wrong to see Arthur Curry there with him. Now, autopsies or the autopsy for Houston was lost. There were autopsies for the other people, but not Houston. However, there was a mention that Houston had a blunt force trauma to the top of the head. So it's theorized that Curry killed Houston, possibly incapacitating him by a hit to the top of the head first. Raymond tried to run from Curry, but he was able to catch up. Raymond had tried to hide. He had run and burrs were found on the bottom of his pants that were from the field that was next to their home. So it does show he at least got into the field trying to run for his life quite literally. From there, Curry realizes he cannot just keep the bodies lying out in the open. Mabel was pretty easy to move. He probably moved her first before the family got home, of course, because if Houston and Raymond had pulled in to the yard and saw Mabel lying at the door of the kitchen, then of course they would have had their, um, hackles up is I guess a good way of saying it. They would have known that there was something horrible going on and would have prepared. So Mabel had most likely been moved from the kitchen door area before Houston and Raymond even got home. Raymond and Houston their bodies were moved into the wagon shed, but Houston's pipe, screwdriver, and hat remained in the yard. At around 510ish, that's when a witness saw someone fixing the door. This person was described as tall and thin. You know they were of a slight build, and Arthur Curry was of a slight build. Then, for whatever reason, he rushes back to the house and turns off the light, all in time to be ready by 5.20 when Bernice and the bus pull into the yard. Bernice comes in and most likely comes in through the other door to the home because she is not wearing her coat when she's found, just like Raymond was not. So it's thought that she came in through the other door and did not see her mother immediately. She hung up her coat, and once she got into the kitchen, though, it was very obvious that her mother was gone. There was a lot of blood. And this is where I say the the fear is almost felt when you look at that picture. The legs to the table slash counter are not very far apart. They're very close together. And to get your last moment, your last breath, and stay fighting for your life, that's what it looks like she was doing. She was fighting for every last breath, And not having any other place left to run. She was trying to hide in an area on the floor. But she was very easily found. There was just nowhere else to go. She was probably feeling trapped and was trapped. And she was the last of the family members to die. So this is a pretty accepted timeline. However, I just, I wonder why Mabel has to be the first one to die. I think if there was going to be violence, it would most likely, not necessarily, or not 100%, of course, because this is a theory, but it seems like since Houston was the one Curry had been talking to, that Curry and Houston would have come to blows faster. So what if this happened? Curry gets to the house. Mabel says, my husband's not home. He is in town and should be back anytime now with the $30 that you that's owed to you. Having some tension between him and the Germond family, he might feel more comfortable going outside and waiting just to get away as soon as Houston and Raymond get home. He's standing there waiting outside when the two men pull up. Now, another thing too is there are cows That have not been milked since you know this whole crime took place, but there's one cow that is attached to a milking machine. I have no experience in herding a cow and trying to get her to the milking machine, but there was one there which, to me, says Houston at least was outside for a period of time before he was killed. So what if Curry says, you know, I want to talk to you about the land. Houston is just like, listen, I have things to do. My cows need to be milked. You know, my wife's cooking Thanksgiving dinner. I want to go in and relax, maybe help her out. So I'm just going to go get a cow and put it on the milking machine. He does that. And in the meantime, Curry is waiting for him because Houston just needs to get his work done. Once he's done, he goes back to Curry, who's been waiting in the yard. Feeling some type of rejection or knowing that Houston most likely will not change his mind, he's waiting for him and gets angry and hits him on the top of the head. There's never been a determination as to what he was hit with, but there may have been a number of different things that were available, um, you know, just around the yard or the shed. There, Houston drops everything in his pocket in his hands as he falls so whatever's in his pocket falls out, or as Curry is dragging him to the shed, some of the items that he has on fall out. Houston would be the person that he would most likely kill the most, or kill first the most, because he is the male, and most likely in most circumstances If there is a man and a woman, the man is usually the first one that is killed or incapacitated as it makes it easier to subdue a woman. This is, you know, statistically what usually happens. With all of the ruckus going on, Mabel hears the two men fighting and comes to the door. She may have the knife in her hand, not even realizing she does, She's been cutting something up and she hears a commotion. So she walks to the door. Curry turns around and now he knows he has a witness. He's just hit Houston on the top of the head. Houston is unconscious and Mabel says she's going to call the police. Even though we know that there was not a phone in the house or most likely was not. It's never really answered. It's just they went to Curry's house to call the police. There is a possibility they could have done that because they didn't want to contaminate the crime scene. But, you know, either way, Mabel says she's going to call the police or let the police know what's happened. Curry grabs her, grabs the knife, and kills her. Raymond's been inside the home. He's had time to take his jacket off. And he somehow slips by Curry, either by going out the other door or, as Curry is on one side of the table... Um, while killing Mabel, Raymond slips out the other side from him, You know, going across the other side of the table. Raymond tries to hide somewhere. He needs to get away from Curry, and Curry has just finished killing Mabel. He goes outside, but there's not many places for the young boy to hide. Any place available, Curry would easily see him. It's just a matter of possibly peeking around a corner. So Raymond has to run for it but he doesn't make it far and he's killed. This is where he gets into the field that has the burrs and the burrs get stuck to his pant leg. It's much easier for Curry to drag a young boy to the wagon shed and he gets him in there. But Houston is not knocked out completely now. He's starting to come to. Curry still has the knife and there he finishes Houston off. He drags Houston to the wagon shed, getting the doors closed about 10 minutes or so before Bernice gets home. He goes inside and turns off the lights, hoping that will give him both an advantage in attacking Bernice, in that one, he can hide, and two, it will delay her seeing her mother's body. Once she gets in and gets her coat up, she walks into the kitchen and sees her mother. There's no doubt her mother is dead and not knowing who might be in the house but maybe hearing a noise or seeing Curry approach. She tries to run but she doesn't make it far and in desperation crawls between the counter and the table and is caught and killed. She has defensive wounds as she was trying to fight off her attacker but it was to no avail. There were gloves found on the table. Those gloves had blood stains and cuts on them. Now, some people thought at first they were Bernice's gloves. They were, though, like I said, covered in blood and had cuts. Why would someone take Bernice's gloves off after she was dead? My theory is the gloves were kind of small or slight, and looking at the hands, they thought they would best fit Bernice. However, Curry was called a slight man, so it's just as possible that he had the gloves on. As we now know, a lot of people, when they're stabbing someone, will have the knife slide because blood is very slippery. So as he was killing the family, the knife started to slide up and down his hand, cutting the gloves, and for whatever reason... Curry left them at the crime scene. It could have been inadvertent, but for someone to take the gloves off Bernice just doesn't sound right. So that's how I kind of think the murders might have taken place. That's my conjecture on it, but it's also one of the frustrating points where I said the book keeps saying, you know, evidence will show, or also he would say, evidence disproves when looking at. Certain pieces of evidence, and in most cases it actually he actually says evidence disproves, but that's never explained in full. So what evidence was there to say who was murdered first, second, third, even though it's pretty sure who was murdered fourth, and that was Bernice because Paul, I'm sorry Houston and Raymond were on the way home from Paul's at four thirty. They wouldn't have stopped anywhere else. And so we know that Bernice, when she got home, her family was most likely dead. Now, some of the things that make people believe that Curry was, in fact, the murderer, there are plenty. Something that stands out to me is, you know, if, you're, if you have a feud with a family, why go to that person to cut your hair? Bernice went to school in Poughkeepsie. That was a bigger town, and she could have most likely one day found someone to cut her hair without having to go to a man who was mad at her family. She probably would have never thought that he'd hurt her while cutting her hair, but she may have just felt uncomfortable going there. And beyond that, even if she could not get her hair cut anywhere else, would she have necessarily gone into her love life? With this man telling him about, you know, a boyfriend that she had, it seems unlikely to me that she would, you know, go into that detail of information if the families were mad at each other. Curry also kept changing his story, and it was odd because the things he changed were very easily um, proven. Like the time that he got home, there was a man waiting to get his hair cut. He would make it sound like it was 6.40 when he was getting the haircut, when in fact it was closer to 7. He denied being at the home on the day of the crime. At times he would say that he collected the $30 and other times that he did not. He was not consistent in his statements and that was probably the biggest factor. He also did go around town pointing out that Bernice had this boyfriend. We know now that sometimes a suspect or murderer will kind of insinuate themselves into the actual investigation. And this is a way to try to manipulate the direction of the investigation. So he was in there just kind of spouting off about Bernice's love life, this boyfriend she had, trying to put the focus on her. And one of the attorneys, district attorneys or prosecutors to this or to the day that he died, believed that it was Bernice who was the center of the whole story. She was the reason for the murders. There truly was no indication that she had a boyfriend. So that's just kind of, you know, disregarded immediately by a lot of the investigators. But like I said, one of the main people in. The case, the attorney believes it was Bernice at the center of the whole murder or murders. Another thing that I look at is the screwdriver. Houston had a screwdriver in his hand. So, or in the pile of things that were in the yard, the um, screwdriver, the pipe, and the hat. So... Had he started to work on something as well, you know, he brought the cow over, hooked it up, expecting Curry to leave at some point. He may have already even given him the $30, but Houston starts to work on things. And finally, walking out into the yard with Curry, it's when Curry strikes. Why did he feel that he needed to murder the whole family? Could it be that he was expected there that day to collect the rent so if bernice had gotten home and found her mother brother and father killed she would have known that curry a man that her father had a dispute with was supposed to be there that day mabel and raymond would have been killed because they witnessed houston's murder so he committed one murder and then three more to cover up the fact that he committed a murder And in some ways it worked because looking back on the case more than 90 years later, we can speculate and think that someone was the murderer, but what can be done about catching them? Nothing. So just kind of some thoughts in general. Do I think that Arthur Curry was the murderer? Just to protect myself, I will continue to use the word alleged and supposedly he was alleged. And I believe... He was the murderer. He's the only one close by who, you know, would have had a motive, who could have easily gotten home, yet someone who Mabel would have opened the door for as he was a neighbor and she was expecting him. The conversation may not have been cordial, but she could have said, wait for Houston, and he did so. She wouldn't feel like she was in danger having him on her property. To kind of cap that off, there was some information found later that Curry did have an arrest for assault previously, as well as he was actually a Canadian citizen. He was not an American citizen. The reason that's important is he could not have been a deputy at that time and not have been a citizen of the United States. So there's then the question of Did Sheriff Close know this while working with Arthur Curry? Also, one would not expect someone who had a prior conviction to be allowed to be a deputy sheriff. While we cannot completely disregard any of the other theories, it all seems to most likely be Arthur Curry. At the crime scene, they of course looked for the murder weapons, even going down the road Sorry, murder weapon, singular. They even went down the road looking and they didn't find it. But later on, it shows up. The same with Houston's wallet. So it would have been someone local who would have had the time to wait until the police were done with their searches to then plant the wallet, plant the knife, and have someone come upon them. At that time, there were actually a lot of people around the area. So even some days later, the press would have still been coming to the scene. It was big news. So Curry had every reason to be in the area because he lived there. That would give him the opportunity to hide the items and give every opportunity then for one of the journalists or other people coming to the property out of of morbid curiosity to find the knife and the wallet, and it was actually those other than law enforcement who found the knife and wallet. Some people, myself included, believe that's because they were dropped off in those locations after the police had already searched. We also have to take a look at the evidence that Mrs. Curry provided. This is a time where women really didn't head households if she had said something and her husband went to, you know, have the death death penalty be executed because of these crimes, she would have been left without a husband and very few options at that point in time and at her age. Bernice was able to go to school and go into the workforce or would have been able to go into the workforce if her life had not been cut short. But Curry's wife would not most likely have those options available to her so for her to give testimony against her husband was a huge risk for her so we can sit here and try to look at her reasons why she would testify against him we could say it's the jilted wife who's mad because of something she's or her husband has done so she's testifying against him but again, I find that unlikely because her prospects on being able to support herself at a minimum would have been very difficult. Looking at the other possible people, um, suspects, the disheveled stranger theory seems unlikely to me because they would have had to like lie in wait for Bernice most likely. They pulled two bodies into the shed and another into the home when Mabel probably fell somewhere near the door. She may have been, um, or had to have been pulled just slightly into the door. And while they may have come across the home and killed Mabel, it's possible that Houston and Raymond then got home, which meant that this person had to then kill them. And while he was trying to, you know, situate the whole, um, The whole scene, you know, locking the barn door. He heard something, which was the bus, and he ran to the house and turned off the lights. I don't necessarily hold to this order of events, but a stranger doing all that just seems unlikely. You know, I think things happen more in the order of, you know, what I said about Houston most likely being the one, you know, had his head hit first and then Mabel was killed. Then Raymond, I to me that is a likely series of events. It just doesn't seem likely for a stranger to be able to get that close to Houston to hit him in the head. First, those are just my thoughts. I think the account of Andrew Neems Jr. that Steve Lico had done the murders is bogus. He either felt threatened by the former poughkeepsie police commissioner or by some type of vengeance he thought he would you know avenge his mother for whatever lico had done to her and try to set him up for these murders and be killed which let me tell you that's pretty heavy if you know he was trying to manipulate the system to you know have someone that he had this beef with get executed but was he telling the truth in either situation? We can say most likely not for the murders. We can say that Steve Leco is probably very, very low down on the possibilities of committing the murder. But like I said, it's pretty heavy then that Andrew Neems Jr. would have possibly been thinking about how to get revenge and sending someone to the electric chair. Paul was one of the people who disregarded the whole poacher theory that the poacher Paul had seen previously had come back to exact his own revenge. Paul didn't think that would happen, but it was the Great Depression. Things were getting tougher for people. they may have really needed ac- access to a place where they could get food, and hunting was one thing they could do without having to you know pay for their their meat at a butcher or at a store. So if someone is desperate to, you know, put food's on their food on their kids' table, then they might actually take those steps as a way, you know, to just provide for their family. So could they be that mad and come after somebody? Still probably not, only if they felt threatened themselves. So while I think this is a very, very, very unlikely scenario, we can't, you know, say 100% it's not the case, um, you know, that it's not someone who accidentally came upon Houston's house and killed him instead of Paul. Some people have even said it was Paul that killed the family, even though there was really no motive as to why he would do something like that. Is this destined to be one of those cases where, for years and years, people very adamantly believe who the murderer was, but there will never be any proof conclusively to that? Kind of like Lizzie Borden and O.J. Simpson. Many people believe that they were guilty, even though they were found not guilty when tried. Do people in Dutchess County, New York, look back at Thanksgiving and wonder why this case was never solved? Did Sheriff Cookingham kind of jump the gun in arresting and charging Curry or did he think that he had no choice as he could not see any evidence coming to their attention so he thought that he had to take the chance and arrest Curry. Why was the investigation and crime scene contaminated with hundreds of people walking around the area? Hoof prints were even found from a horse but there was no way they could be proven conclusively to be part of the murder. There were too many people walking around to be able to even see anything about the prints themselves and even if they were able to identify the hoof prints, it could always be said that they were there before or that they had come there at the time you know when the press was coming or they were coming to observe what was going on out of curiosity. It just contaminated the whole crime scene. Could the relationship between Curry and Sheriff Close had been a reason that the crime scene was not handled properly and that no one was ever arrested and charged? Or I guess I should say no one other than Arthur Curry. One would have to think too this was a crime of opportunity or rage. Um, it was not preplanned, in my opinion, because the knife used was thought to have come from the Dermond family by some people. You know, again, law enforcement never tracked down that 11th knife that the seller had said he sold, but that doesn't mean that the Dermonds didn't get it from someone else or the store didn't remember properly who they gave it to. You know, again, they kind of narrowed it down to the 11 people on that one store's list, but it could have been sold somewhere else or they could have had it for years. And that particular seller was not the one who sold it to them. It makes more sense that the knife would come from the German family home because also Curry's wife probably would have noticed that he brought a knife back and would have mentioned it. If he wasn't afraid to walk in front of his wife covered in blood, would he have necessarily been worried or concerned about pulling a knife out and him just saying that's what he used to butcher the pig? She didn't mention anything like that. So she also didn't mention that there was a knife missing. At least that's recorded anywhere. So it does sound like he grabbed the knife from the kitchen. So this is what we know about the Germond family murders. While we don't have an official resolution, there is one person where it seems the circumstantial evidence points to there wasn't anything that was available at that time that could ever link Curry to the murders themselves. The clothes and all of the physical evidence that would have had the blood on it has been lost to time. And while it would have been close to a hundred years, we'd have to wonder. What could happen if there was DNA extracted from the gloves, especially, would have most likely held at least two people's DNA, if not all five people, meaning the Germans as well as Arthur Curry. If those could be tested, that could bring a whole resolution to this case. But none of those items are to be found, so we'll be sitting here wondering now, and maybe even another hundred years who killed the Germond family on that Thanksgiving eve in 1930 at a time that while the nation itself was going through an economic depression it was still a day to give thanks and gather together as a family they didn't know that they wouldn't make it to Thanksgiving that they wouldn't be able to sit down at the dinner that Mabel had so lovingly prepared and talk to each other, spent time together, and not have something like a TV or radio blasting in the background to distract a person from having a conversation. They never got to that. Mabel and Raymond never got to get married. They never got to have children. And Mabel and Houston never got to have grandchildren. Paul, living so close to his brother's house, may have had to pass by the scene of his family's death many, many times. And what must he have felt going by each time and seeing his family, knowing how they appeared, where they were, and every day he would be within two miles of that site. It took me years after my cousin was killed to be able to drive past the location without feeling like I needed to catch my breath. And while I loved my cousin, I still think about him daily to have a sibling murdered along with his wife and his kids. That is a pain that I don't think anybody can even try to put into words. So these things happened. There were lives who never got to accomplish things that they wanted to do and for those left behind, there were always reminders of the family that was gone. I myself am a great aunt and even a great, great aunt. I, I don't know if it a great grand aunt or great, great aunt. And it's really wonderful to see them grow. So Paul and his family never got to see the children of Raymond and Bernice grow up because they never got that opportunity. And I think that's lost sometimes, especially when looking back at this case so long ago, we don't have the pictures of Paul of uh, pain and grief that he must have been feeling at the time that the murders you know, were discovered and seeing his family like that. While today, if there's a murder case like this, we would see the siblings and aunts and uncles on TV. I think we forget that there was family left behind. The immediate family was gone, but Paul and his family had to struggle every day knowing that their loved ones were killed and no one was ever brought to justice. And also maybe feeling scared or in fear because you don't know if that person is going to come back for you. Any death is a tragedy. If someone has lived a long and fruitful life, at least people can look back and celebrate the accomplishments and things that they've done. When it's taken prematurely and in such a violent manner, it leaves a stain on the community that may never go away. And I think that's the case here. People petitioned to try to get a grand jury to form and to try to find out what exactly happened. But there was nothing there at that time that could help, especially as the crime scene was contaminated. So it seems like we will always look back and know that most likely the Germond family murders will never be solved. Okay, guys, thank you so much for hanging in there. Um, I hope I did the family justice. They don't have as much attention as some other cases, and at least their names can be remembered. They never got the justice that they deserved, but maybe we can just keep their story going, keep their names alive, and be thankful for each day that we get to spend with our loved ones. All right, everybody, I will talk to you all as soon as I can. Um, Doing these podcasts, it's it's not something I do full-time. It's something I do because I do want to get stories out there and to have people remembered. And most importantly, to learning from each case, whether it's about how to prevent a tragedy, about seeing warning signs, about precautions that we can take, just anything that we can learn from a story. That's what I want to do. I find vintage cases or older cases even more intriguing because we get to take a look at the DNA and, you know, different machines that we have now and, you know, realize that police, whether it's 90 years ago or 190 years ago, didn't have the same technology. Now, a lot of times they still solved the case. It just took a lot more work or a lot more evidence because you didn't have that definitive thing such as DNA or in regards to accidents and weather disasters, there aren't things like cockpit voice recorders and things like that that will record movements or words or, you know, steps that, let's just use an airplane as the example, Um, the black box that also records data as well. They didn't have those things back then. And, you know, if it wasn't for things that they did or didn't do and that were learned from, we wouldn't have the technology that we have now. It might be easy to look back at a case from 90 years ago and just shake our heads and what they allowed to happen. But we also have to remember that, you know, this was not a normal case. And, I do have some compassion for the law enforcement officers, even if they didn't take good care of the crime scene, just because it was something they've never dealt with and they had to feel shock. But to, to get back to where I started from there, um, you know, I do want to get these stories out, but I don't always necessarily, you know, have a time where I can say every week, every two weeks or give an exact date so I hope everybody understands, and you know, will continue to listen, even though, you know, some weeks or months I might have episodes closer together, where others they're further apart. Um, you know, I just kind of wanted to explain that as well, just so you know, I I want to make it understood that I do care about these cases and care about the people involved, and I do ri- wish that. I could do an episode every week or even two or three episodes a week. But the amount of research involved and looking up things just, you know, that would take a ton of time as well as, you know, putting everything together and forming a narrative out of everything that's found. But I do hope you find the content informative and will continue to tune in and listen. Maybe one day I will be able to get to that schedule where I can say definitely on these days I will have something out. Um, fingers crossed that that day comes soon, but I will talk to you again soon. Bye.